disciples of Jesus. But before we do that and before we pray, I want to um, want to welcome somebody home. Leonard Cole is, uh, is back from his deployment in Qatar, and we are glad that you're home safely. Can we get you to stand so that everybody can see you again? I like it when the fellas come home, don't you? Let's pray. Father, you give us so many reasons to, to rejoice and to be happy and to, for joy to spring forth from our hearts and from our souls like deer leaping through the meadows in the beginning of spring. It's because of beauty, Father, that we find ourselves uh, able to rise above the anxiety that is a current under every underneath everything that we stand on. You help us, Father, to find that joy and to find that strength because of the character of Your holiness that is revealed to us in Christ. And You help us, Father, through the Spirit that lives inside of us to, to be strong in the inner person and to be sanctified in our thinking and in our understanding of Your Word, in, in our ability to choose and our understanding of the world around us as it reflects the, the, uh, the, 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 the residence of Your Word inside our hearts. Thank You so much for all of these things. Thank You for the opportunity to sing and, and to encourage one another. Thank You for the, the opportunity to pray, Father, and to be reminded that we were... We're not our own. We were bought at a price because of the cross of Jesus. Thank you for all of us, and especially for Leonard's family, that you've brought him home safely. And we're thankful, Father, that you can give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word. And it's that that we pray for in the name of Jesus and all the church said, Amen. First John chapter 2, verse 6 says, Anyone who claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. Now, sounds like a pretty easy verse, doesn't it? But when you begin to think about it, you want to know what does it mean to walk the same way or to live the same way that Jesus did? Well, that's what Ephesians 5 is all about. Ephesians 5 is this long passage on what it means to live or to walk as Jesus did to live as a disciple. Now, the, the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians has six chapters. The first three are theological they get our minds up in the, the stratosphere theologically. We find out all of these great things that God has done for us through Christ and through the Spirit. There are blessings and adoption and we're put in a church and we're strengthened in the inner person and, and we are unified in, inside of the church because of the cross. And God has, has given us this salvation through the grace that comes to us through His Son. The second part of the letter deals with the more practical issues of living as disciples. It's, it's about living as, as disciples, as Christians, and living inside of the church. And when you think about it, Paul is really doing something pretty profound there, just in the structure of the book. In that first section, it's about the, the theological blessings that are in Christ. The second part has to deal with the practical. You don't live differently. That is, you don't add a lot of good stuff like virtue, and you don't take away a lot of bad stuff like vices in order to become a Christian. If you did that, it would be based on your merit and not the grace that comes to us because of Christ and because of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. But we do live differently because what God has done for us in Christ. As disciples, we live a different kind of a life because of the perspective we have, because of the spiritual changes that have taken place inside of us. 
Now, if I were to find a passage in Ephesians that would pinpoint uh, this idea, underscore this idea in Paul's thinking, it would be Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul says, listen, I tell you this and I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the what? Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, there's irony in that. Paul is writing to Gentiles and he's telling them, I don't want you to live like Gentiles. Now, what does that mean? Well, for Paul, it's a denunciation. It's a denunciation of a former way of living. A living that is characterized by futility because it's void of Christ. To live a different life in Paul's mind is the sweeping revolution that takes place through every crook and nanny, <laughs> niche and crook and cranny of our heart. It's <laughs> you know, it's, I'm only four minutes into the sermon and I messed up. Aren't you, <laughs> aren't you thankful for grace? What he's saying is that there's this sweeping revolution that takes place throughout your body. Why don't I choose the easy way to say it? I mean, that's, uh, that would be the easy thing to do, right? What he's talking about is his life that gets re-educated, re-managed, retooled in such a way that you look differently from anybody else, that you look differently from that former way of living. And so Paul does, in this, this practical part of Ephesians, what he does in all of his letters, he gives us this really positive way to, to, to think about as a motivation to live for Christ, but he also gives us the negative side of it as well as we begin to think like disciples and very Christianly and very profoundly about what it is, the kind of life that we're moving away from in order to live like Jesus. You see, in Paul's mind, it's very important that every Christian... They must have this sense of the horror and the danger that is in the evil of sin. I want you to write that down on your outlines. Christians must have a sense of the horror and the danger of the evil that is in every sin. Now, you and I as believers, as disciples, we have to understand that sin is a nightmare. That sin is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so what we're going to do with the rest of the time this morning is go to Ephesians 5 that, that Corey just read for us beautifully just a minute ago, and we're going to see a couple of things that Paul wants our minds and hearts to know about sin. The first one is this. Sin is a futile, external, internal act of disobedience. Now we're going to go to verse 11 and see what Paul has to say about the, 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 the scope or the expanse of what sin is. He writes, have nothing to do with the what? Fruitless deeds of what? Darkness. Let's say that all together. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Let's say it again. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. I want you to circle somewhere on your Bible or write those words down on your outline. Fruitless and darkness. Now why in the world would Paul say that sin is fruitless? It's very simple. In Paul's mind, in every writer of the New Testament, the Old Testament... In their thinking, in their mind, sin is fruitless because sin promises what it will not deliver. Sin never delivers. Sin never delivers. It's a lie. It tells you it will deliver, but it won't. It's fruitless. It will not deliver. Now, one of the ways to think about this is, suppose you live up in Fredericksburg, Texas. You come across and buy some acreage, and you decide, you know what, I'm going to be a peach tree person. I want to have a bunch of peach trees. And, and you, you decide that uh, you know, peach trees are the ways that you're going to take care of yourself. You're going to take care of your family. 
It's going to be the foundation for the way that you put your kids through college, the way that you prepare for retirement. Those peach trees and the money that you make off of it, that's going to be the way that you put food on the table and clothes on your back and you have a roof over your head. You want those peach trees to produce. And because, you know, you, it's the foundation of your life and how you're going to survive and sustain yourself, you put a lot of physical energy into it, right? And so you, you till that ground and you take the rocks out and you prepare the soil and you plant those saplings and you prune and you water and you fertilize and you keep the deer out of it from eating it all the time. And, and you, you invest all of this physical energy into it because it's the foundation for your life. But the bottom line is, you really like peaches. And that's why you chose them. I mean, you like everything there is about a peach, the way they look, the way they feel, the way they taste. You like peach pie. You like peach cobbler. You like peach ice cream. You like peach strudel. You married your wife because she has peaches and cream complexion. And so you're also investing a lot of emotional energy into this, this, this acreage of, of, of full of peach trees. And you're, 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 you're waiting and you're watching, and you're thinking about those peaches, and you can taste it in your mouth, and you're counting your money and figuring out where you're going to invest all of that money. And then the peach season comes to the harvest time, and there's not a single peach. Not a single one. After all of that emotional energy and physical energy that you've invested into it, and nothing comes. But you're a little bit discouraged, a little bit upset, but you're not disillusioned just yet. So guess what? Next year you do the exact same thing. And the next year, it's the same kind of emotional energy, same kind of physical energy, and you invest and invest and invest, and you work and you work and you work, and at the end of the harvest time, nothing. But you've invested so much in it, so you've got to keep going to the very next year. Third year now, you're investing, investing, working, 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 into the harvest season, nothing. By the end of the fifth year, you have the, those trees that just sucked all of your resources up. I mean, you look at your bank account, and it's scorched, and it's nothing but smoke rising as far as you can see. And you're losing your house? And you've been eating beans and rice for a long time? And you're going to lose the acreage and there's nothing to send your kids to college? And you end up losing everything because those peach trees were fruitless. And all of your neighbors are looking at you and they're going, why didn't he just learn from the, the first time it happened to him? Why did he go a second year and a third year and a fourth year and a fifth year? Why didn't he stop while he was ahead? Why didn't he get out when he saw that those trees were not producing fruit? What's the reason, church? Darkness. Fruitless deeds of what? Darkness. You can't see it. But Paul gets even more specific when he goes to verse 5 and he says, Be sure of this. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, for such a man is an idolater, ever has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now what he does here is help us to see that, that, that sin is not just fruitless, but there's this gigantic expanse to it. There's, there's a scope to it. And he helps us to understand a couple of important things about our dealing with it. For instance, why in the world would Paul choose these two words? Or actually, it's three words, but they're, they're actually two Pauls. You have the immoral and the impure on one side and the greedy on the other. Why would he choose those two words? You know, at first blush, it makes it sound like if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, you know what you have to do? You just got to make sure you're not immoral and you're not impure on one hand and you're not greedy or an idolater on the other, and you've got it. But you know as well as I do that the list of the things that are disobedient to God's will much more expansive, much more exhaustive than that, right? You know what I think he's doing? He's using immoral and impure and greedy idolater 
the way that other writers throughout the Bible use the words heaven and earth. When they say heaven and earth, they don't mean just heaven and just earth, but what do they mean? Heaven and earth and everything in between. That's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, think about the external act of, of impurity and immorality, all of those acts that are external, along with all of those that are internal, like, like idolatry and, and greed and these kinds of things. Now, now why, does, why does he do that? Why does he force us to think about the fact that, that sin has this external component to it and this internal component to it? Is it not because we struggle with just the weight and the, 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 the expanse of, of sin itself? I mean, isn't it easy for us, you know, the things that we don't have a problem with, that we're able to lift those things up and talk about those things, but we ignore the things that are difficult for us? Or we, you know, we lift up the part that seems, you know, really attractive to us and, and the thing that seems to be polished up pretty well in our own life, but we ignore the part that we really struggle with. For instance, you have a woman who is outraged because of abortion. Rightly so. But on the other hand, she's killing other mothers and she's killing the children of those other mothers with her gossip. That's wiping out their character in the eyes and the ears and the hearts of all of these other mothers. You lift up one part and you neglect the other. Or you've got this fella who's driving down 410 or driving on 164, driving someplace here in San Antonio, and he becomes outraged because of all of these strip joints and all of these men clubs. And he just gets furious because he's thinking about all of the ways that these, these places are ruining men's lives and the way that, that, uh, that they're ruining families and, and marriages. But when he gets home, not realizing that he's ruining his own family because of these angry outbursts at his wife and his children. We lift up one part and we neglect the other. My friends, sin is disobedience to the will of God. Period. And we must know without a shadow of a doubt that it is incompatible to the life of a disciple to whatever degree. And that sin will kill you. But not only is it all of this external stuff, but it's also the internal stuff as well. I mean, you can live your life in such a way that it's kind of polished up and you wax it down pretty good and you make it look kind of beautiful as you're performing all of these good external things. And, and on the outside, on the facade, you look pretty good, but on the inside, your heart and your soul is not very compatible with the will of God, is it? Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you've heard it said, all of these things are wrong from murder to, to adultery, but I'm telling you, if it's happening in the heart, you're still guilty. And so what happens is we begin to realize that we do struggle in our own way with idolatry, and we, we do struggle in our own way with, with greed, and we begin to see that our problem with sin goes much deeper than ethic and behavior. It's also a problem with our heart. And anything that becomes to you stronger than God, that's an idol. Anything that demands more of your allegiance and you give it, that's an idol. And if you don't do business with these idols and eject them from your heart, what they will do to you is they will drive you to the ground and they will paralyze you with, with fear and they will disappoint you over and over and over again because they are fruitless and they will never deliver. 
But Paul doesn't stop right there in, in helping us to understand what sin is all about. He also reminds us that sin, number two, is a, is a power. It's a power. It's not just a futile, fruitless act. It's not just something we do externally. It's not just something that we deal with internally. But sin is also a power. It's a power of the heart. He says in verse, uh, verse 8, For you were once, what? Darkness. I, I don't know how many times I've read that verse, and it just sort of dawned on me recently that Paul is not saying that we once lived in darkness, even though that's true. What he is saying is that we were once darkness, that human beings are darkness, that they don't do deeds of darkness only, but that they are darkness. We're dark. Now again, this is one of the places where modern people really kind of uh, choke on, on some of the things that the Bible teaches because they think it's a, it's a little too negative. It's just a little too over the top. But is it? You know, uh, Charles Colson wrote a book uh, several years ago entitled Who Speaks for God? And he tells uh, in, in an article in one of the chapters about an interview that Mike Wallace did with a fellow by the name of uh, Yehiel Dinur. But the story begins well before uh, this, this interview. You know the name Adolf Eichmann? Eichmann was lieutenant colonel in the, in the Nazi army during World War II. He was an architect of, um, of the Holocaust. He, uh, he escaped in 1945 to Argentina. He was there for 15 years before the Israeli uh, Mossad, the, the secret service, their, their, their uh, special forces, were able to extradite him secretly, <laughs> extradite him secretly out of Argentina and bring him back to Jerusalem, where in 1961 he faced trials for the Holocaust and all the things that happened at places like Auschwitz and, and Dachau and, 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 and uh, the, the extermination of, of Jewish people by the millions. And there was a, a survivor of Auschwitz uh, by the name of Yehiel Denur that was called in to, to testify. You may know his name. He became a Nobel laureate, um, died uh, back in the 80s. And uh, uh, Yehiel Denur had, had known Eichmann since 1943 when he was at Auschwitz, but had not seen him since 1945. Sixteen years later, 1961, he's in Jerusalem. Eichmann's on trial. He comes into the courtroom having not seen Eichmann in 16 years. And when he sees him, sitting over there surrounded by the guards on trial, Denur begins to weep uncontrollably. Just gets overwrought emotionally and he ends up fainting and uh, some of the Israeli uh, uh, courtroom guards have to help him to a seat and it was all caught on film. Now, all these many years later, Mike Wallace shows in an interview Denur that, that, uh, that piece of film footage and he says... What were you thinking at that moment when you became so emotionally overwrought when you saw Eichmann? Was he, was he overcome by fear? Did, was he having these horrifying you know, memories come flooding through his memory again? Why, why that emotion? And Denur says something to Wallace's surprise. He says, because I saw Eichmann was an ordinary man. And I begin to be afraid for myself because in his ordinariness, I saw myself. And Wallace, to the chagrin of lots of people, summarized that interview with Denur and said, you know what, 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 what Denur is saying, whether you agree with it or not, is that Eichmann is in all of us. 
Now, most modern people look at that and they go, Auschwitz and Dachau and the Holocaust and times of war and the brutality and we're, we're past all of that. That's a, that's a little extreme, don't you think? Don't you think that's an extreme exception? But before we dismiss it as such, we go to the writings of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the, archipelago, the Gulag Archipelago, where he makes the same point about the blue caps in that chapter in that book. He says, how could these, these men who, who were so brutal and, and tortured and, 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 and massacred their countrymen go home at the end of the day and be ordinary men, ordinary husbands, ordinary fathers with, with ordinary dogs and cats eating ordinary meals in, in Russia during this period of time? And what Solzhenitsyn says, and what other philosophers have said ever since then, is that there are, every human being has the seeds of great darkness inside of their hearts. And as disciples of Jesus, we recognize the fact that those seeds are there. We recognize that sin is, is this terrible problem. We recognize that, that sin is an issue that all of us have to deal with, and that if we're not careful, we're going to water the seeds of great evil and it may never become great like the Charles Mansons and, and the Eichmanns and the Stalins of the world. But we do gossip and slander and cheat and lust and we understand greed. It's a power. And because of just how profound sin is, there's a third thing and that is there is the wrath of God. Sin brings the wrath of God. In verse 6, Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. It's because of such things that God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. You know, when you have a discussion with anybody in, in, in the Western world today, one of the hardest things that they have to accept about Christianity is this idea of God's wrath. And part of the problem is, is that they don't understand what wrath is all about. They don't understand it the way that the ancient world understood and used this word wrath. Wrath in the ancient world for Paul, for others, meant this settled, judicious condemnation that came down on the guilt of some crime. But the problem is when we think about wrath today, what do we think? We think of somebody's capricious emotions. We think of somebody losing control of their emotions, somebody that's out of control with their anger. And so it becomes this very distasteful thing because it doesn't seem to be very rational. Far from it in the sense that Paul uses the word. What Paul is talking about is this settled judicial condemnation. Wrath comes because sin deserves punishment. But again, most people don't buy this. You know, the, the Eichmanns of the world deserve the wrath of God. The, the, the wrath of God comes on the Stalins of the world, but most people are good. Isn't it enough that I just live a good life? Isn't it, isn't it just fine in God's eyes that I'm a good person, that, that I'm a good neighbor, that I'm a good employee? Well, think about it this way. Here's, here's this young family. Husband is killed. It's an unfortunate accident. And this young widow has this young son and she sacrifices a million things in order to raise this son up and to take care of him and to sustain him and to bring him up. And she teaches him all kinds of things. She teaches him to tell the truth and to work hard and to never hurt anybody intentionally. And she says, you know what? Make sure that you share with people that, you know, be generous with your stuff. Make sure that you share with people who are in need. And finally the day arrives and he's of age, and he wants to go off to college, and she sacrifices even more to the point that she really has nothing left anymore. 
And this boy graduates from college and he takes a job in another city away from his mother who is an older widow now. And he marries and he has children, he has a family, but he never has contact with his mother. Now, every once in a while, you know, he sends her a, a, a birthday card, sends her a Christmas card. But beyond that, he doesn't return her phone calls, never answers her emails, her texts, never, never responds in any way to all of her ways of trying to be a mother to him and to have contact with him and have relationship with him. And so we, we look at that and we think, this guy has a problem. And he says to us, but I've done everything that she taught me to do. I've done everything that she wanted. I've lived a good life. I've given of my means. I have never hurt anybody intentionally. I work hard. I tell the truth. I've lived a good life. Isn't that enough? And the church says, no. It's not enough to live a good life. In fact, it's condemnable to think that all you have to do is to live a good life. Why? Because you're rejecting completely the very one to whom you owe everything. That's why the wrath comes. That's why the wrath comes. But to end on a, on a positive note, you know, one of the things that Paul says once again in verse 8 is, is that you were once, past tense, darkness. And then he says you are now light. Great theology is in the prepositions. It's not light because you happen to do good things. You're light because of what important fact? You are in the Lord. The Bible uses, and Paul is most famous for this, of, of talking about how we are in Christ, how we are dressed or clothed with Christ. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, all of these, these, these letters that he wrote talk about how we are in Christ. Sort of a lame example, but we'll close with this. You know, think of, 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 a, of a young woman, not real pretty, really poor, doesn't have two nickels to rub together from the wrong side of the track, doesn't have anything, has nothing to offer. And one day the prince of the greatest kingdom sees her and he falls in love with her and he decides that he is going to marry her. Now think about what happens. He takes this woman who no one would really call the most beautiful person they had ever seen, but what do they do? In this wedding ceremony, he puts her in a beautiful white dress and she is dazzling in all of the gems and the diamonds and the rubies and, and the turquoise and the opals and all of these different stones and gems. She is made beautiful. The makeup and the hair and all of that. She is made radiant by the priest, uh, by, the, uh, by, the, by the prince. And then one second, they have the vow part of the ceremony and one second before that vow, she has absolutely nothing. She has nothing. She doesn't have title. She doesn't have two nickels to rub together. She has absolutely nothing. But one second after she says, I do, and one second after he says, I do, she has all of the treasures and the riches and the glory and the title that belong to the prince. 
We move away from sin because it's fruitless and it kills us and enslaves us and drives us to the ground in fear, whether it's an external thing we do or a part of the internal makeup of our, our, our heart and soul. And we understand that those seeds of destruction are inside of us. We know every one of us in, 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 in the most honest part of our day, we know what we are capable of doing if given just the right kind of circumstances, if it were not for the grace of God, what we would look like. And we know without a shadow of a doubt that as there is blessing, there is also wrath that is coming. But what we rejoice in, and as we move away from the, that negative motivation of the ugliness of sin towards the beauty that is everything that we have in Christ Jesus, we understand what is happening to us. To be in Christ means something beautiful for every one of us. It means that we have had nothing and have been given everything. It means that as the book of Leviticus makes us, reminds us time after time after time as we read Leviticus, that when it comes to God's holiness and all of those laws and all of those regulations that, that, that protected God's holiness and reminded us of our sinfulness, that we're not very pretty. We're not much to write to heaven about. But because the Prince of Heaven loves us, because the Prince of Heaven is willing to give us everything, He makes us beautiful in God's eyes. And He makes us rich out of heaven's treasury. And because we are dressed, we are in Him, we are clothed in Him, God looks upon His children and smiles. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. It's an invitation song. It is such an important part of our assembly as, as people are given an opportunity to respond to the truths that they have heard throughout the day from God's Word. To, 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 not just the truth that they have heard from God's Word, but to see the truth of your changed life. The joy that springs out of your heart. The gladness that is in you because of your salvation and because of the knowledge of God and knowing that regardless of where you go in this world, you're never alone and you're never powerless because God is with you every step of the way, even in the times you don't know it. And that forgiveness is abundantly available and that confession is not nearly as scary as it is if there were not that forgiveness. And to know that the kind of love that God expresses towards us is the kind of love that is willing to suffer for the one that is loved. And if you'd like to respond some way this morning to the call of God, to leave that, that fruitless life full of, of darkness in order to become children of light because you are in the Lord by confessing His name and repenting of your sins and washing your sins away and being baptized for the forgiveness of those sins and the Spirit coming inside of you and sanctifying you and changing you, then come and talk to our shepherds here at the front as we stand and sing this song together. I stand amazed in the presence